want the cup. We want the cup. We want the cup. We want the cup. August 8th, 2020, and uh, we're doing a little special Saturday show here. Uh, Anthony from Flyers AD is joining me today. Anthony, how are you doing? Uh, aside from the technical difficulties, not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> it would not be an episode of Brotherly Pod if there weren't vast technical difficulties throughout the show. Uh, we have a very special guest today. Uh, you may know him from the morning show, TSN in Montreal. Connor McKenna is joining us. Connor, how are you doing? I'm all right. Nice to be on. And, uh, well, congratulations are in order first and foremost. The Canadians beat and eliminated the Penguins last night to nothing. From a Montreal perspective, is this how you expected that series to go? Uh, of course not. I mean, like, I picked the Canadians to win in five, but uh, doing so fully, ex- basically kind of ex- kind of expecting them to lose you know like uh, the penguins are the penguins uh the canadians are the canadians they were pretty terrible this season but this is why we love uh, this is why we love hockey this is why and i mean look at look what happened look what happened yesterday it's insane this is the nhl is as unpredictable as it's ever been so connor like what can you say about the game of carry price like over the past few years, it's not like he's been bad by any stretch of the imagination, but he wasn't, you know, 2015 Hart Trophy carry price. Like, what do you think went into his massive turnaround? And, like, what could be the ceiling for this Canadians team if he keeps up this level of play? I think that as far as the ceiling goes, no matter how well a goaltender plays behind a, a mediocre team, Four rounds, eventually the cream rises to the top. I don't think, even if Carey Price plays as well as he did against the Penguins, that he could take them four rounds. Um, but as far as uh, the way that he's played, he's yeah, he, he played as well in the, in the four games against Pittsburgh as he did, I think, for what I believe was one of the greatest seasons a goaltender's ever had when he won the, uh, the Vezina and the Hart Trophy back in the 2014-15 season. Uh, he was that good. How did he do it? I don't know. We got theories. Everybody's got theories, right? I, I think that when you reach the point in your career as a professional athlete, you're in your early 30s, you've been playing at the top level for over a decade, I think that you can sort of figure out ways to harness your talents and to give your absolute best when you want to do it and and when it's time to do it the the truly great ones are able to sort of do that day in day out year in year out 
And Carey Price is doing that right now. Uh, how long he's going to be able to do it, I don't know. But it's great to see because, uh, man, he's, he's had some really, really tough times over the last few, a few years. It's, uh, people want to sort of uh, uh, say that because he's playing so well that any previous criticism of him is, is unwarranted. I think that's ridiculous. I think that uh, you judge in what, what I do. You judge people sort of in the here and now based on what they're doing. And what he's doing right now is looking like an absolute game breaker and uh, a superstar. Two of the other players he had in support were uh, defenseman Shea Weber and Jeff Petrie. Were you expecting such performances out of Petrie in the playoffs? Petrie's all long been a really, really good player. Uh, often, I think, really underappreciated, um, especially outside of Montreal. Remember when he was an oiler, uh, they loved shitting on him. Right, uh, the, the media, the fan base—they they did not like Jeff Petrie, and uh, they thought that he was part of the problem. It's a very Edmonton thing to do, actually, is to sort of blame your best player when you lose. Uh, I, I wonder if that's something that they might even be doing in that market right now. Um, but anyway, turns out, actually, Jeff Petrie is exactly the type of player that the Oilers needed, and, and frankly, still need right now. And he's just quietly done a really good job. He's, especially since he hit his 30s, he's been playing really, really solid hockey. Like, not, I wouldn't say top 10 D in the league type thing, but just a guy who just quietly gets the job done night in, night out. He skates really well. He's so sound positionally. He's just really, really good at his job. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not really, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm surprised by how well he played uh, because he's been doing it for the Canadians. They don't play a lot of playoff games. They haven't played a lot of playoff games since Petrie arrived. But when they have, he has been consistently one of their best players. Uh, Shea Weber, you know, I think it's, it's a lot like the Carey Price thing a little bit. He's had months and months and months to collect himself to get into game shape and to show up ready. And, and these veteran guys know how to do that. They've learned how to do that over the years. So it's great to see this is only the second time in Shea Weber's career that he's ever going to play in the uh, second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And uh, hopefully he can keep it up. Connor, what could you say about a guy like Ben Sherrod, the way he played in this series? Like, he was always kind of hidden in Winnipeg alongside Jacob Truber, Dustin Bufflin, but I feel like this was really his coming out party. No doubt. I, I think that's a great call. It, because of the because of the fact that on that on those Jets teams, and let's be honest, too, there's, there's star power up front for the Jets. When they were, when they were in, uh, making conference finals... Uh, we talked a lot about uh, some of the firepower that that team had. But, yeah, Sherratt was just a, sort of a quiet background guy, right? But uh, I think it's uh, – I think you're right. I think this was uh, this was the biggest moment of his career so far. He's been really good. Like, I think I think better than a lot of people thought when he uh, when he came over and uh, signed that free agent contract that, oh, is this guy – is is this guy really going to be a top four? Should he be a top four on a good team? I don't know that he is a top-pairing defenseman in a perfect world on a Stanley Cup contending team, but they've asked him to do a job, and so far he's done it really, really well and, and provided a surprising amount of offense for a guy like him. From a Flyers perspective, there is still a chance they play Montreal. You know, I look at this roster and I'm kind of like, eh, you know, I don't see a whole lot here from from kind of an outsider's perspective. If the Flyers do end up playing Montreal, who are players to watch out for? Um, 
well, I guess the guys that you just mentioned, the, the other thing is that the Canadians, they managed to beat the Penguins. This is pretty, it's, it's, it's strange because if you told me a week ago that the Canadians would beat the Penguins while getting little to no offensive contributions from their top line, I would have said you're crazy. But, uh, but uh, Phil Deneau, uh, Brendan Gallagher, and Thomas Tatar have been a really, really good line. They, they don't put up the monster numbers. They don't get the headlines. But they're, from a possession standpoint, a really, really strong line. Uh, they tend to dominate whoever they're up against. And I'm talking like whoever. They, they, they're, the matchups they get are the uh, always the toughest uh, the toughest assignments and they tend to win that matchup uh, night in night out where the Canadians get buried a little bit it's when their guys who aren't their best players are uh, on the ice well Connor we talked about Sherrod's coming out party now you talked you talked about you know the top guns for the Canadians out front I'm kind of curious to get your standpoint on what we saw from Kakaniemi and Suzuki because, you know, much of the criticism going into this series was how was Julian going to use his younger players? You know, he started Jordan Wheel and Dale Weiss over guys like Ryan Paling and Jake Evans to start the series. But then you saw late in games on the penalty kill, specifically Suzuki and even Kakaniemi gain the trust of Claude Julian. What can you say about how those players grew in this playoff series? how the coach trusted them and overall their level of play going forward. Yeah, I think it's, that's probably the most encouraging thing about all this. If from a, a Canadians franchise standpoint, this is what you wanted to see happen. Like I, I said before the series that my dream scenario was they lose in five in overtime and Kakanyemi and Suzuki play a significant role and uh, that's what they did, except for the fact that they ended up winning in four uh, rather than losing in five. Uh, and, and yeah, Claude Julien, I think, is like a lot of coaches. He's, I mean, look, he's this guy's coached thousands of NHL games at this point. I mean, we all know who Claude Julien is. And uh, he's a hockey guy. He's an old school hockey guy. And I think for the most part, old school hockey guys are inclined not to trust young players. And that's been, that's been something that's been brought up with regards to Claude Julien, I think, a lot throughout the course of his career and, and even recently and even what happened with Kakaniemi here in Montreal during the regular season. Now, let's not forget this guy ended up at one point playing under 10 minutes a game. Uh, he ended up finally mercifully being sent to the American Hockey League to try to collect himself and get things back on track. And that went really well until he uh, ruptured his spleen and it looked like his season was over. Uh, but here he is. Uh, and uh, Nick Suzuki gets a lot of accolades, I think, for good reason. I mean, look, it's it's easy to forget that Kakanyemi just turned 20 years old. It's unusual for guys that age to be able to contribute in the National Hockey League, regardless of, of where they were drafted. Uh, you would think a top three pick would be a little bit more likely, and it's great to see that that's happening. I think it's probably the most encouraging thing that happened was that Kakanyemi was arguably the Canadians' best forward. Nick Suzuki was also arguably the Canadians' best forward in the series. And look, uh, has to do tough jobs, right? Uh, Suzuki saw a lot of Evgeny Malkin. Uh, we saw guy, those guys at times be on the ice at the same time as, uh, as Sidney Crosby. That, short of having an opportunity to draft in the top nine, which would have been, I think, probably still would, would be, and I could be wrong about this, but the best thing that could have happened to the franchise you look at the experience that these kids garnered and the experience that they're going to get, whether it's against the Tampa Bay Lightning or against the Philadelphia Flyers, whatever happens next, it's really it's hard to quantify, right? 
but it could be that uh, five years from now, it's a bit of a dream scenario for the franchise, but that five years from now, you're talking about, wow, you think about the experience that Suzuki and Kakanami were able to get playing games at this level so early in their careers and, and the dividends that it paid down the road. That's that's a dream scenario. That's something that you hope for. But it's really, I think it's it's tough to be negative from a Canadian standpoint, especially when you're talking about those two guys. So uh, Anthony tells me you have some pretty strong feelings about two former Flyers and Dale Weiss and Jordan Wheel. Uh, I mean, I, my feeling is that they are good, honest players and uh, they've worked very hard to get where they are and I've, uh, I've got a great deal of respect for both of them. But I don't think that uh, Claude Julien is uh, doing himself or the franchise any favors by trotting him out there in the top 12. Listen, just my opinion. I realize I'm just some guy, and Claude Julien is Claude Julien. Um, but that's what I do. It's what I do for a living is sort of talk about things like this, so I'll go ahead and do it. Those guys have no business being on the ice on a team that uh, that should be contending. And it's disappointing to see them get opportunities that could be given to, I believe, younger, more effective, and hungrier players. But tough to second guess a guy who just knocked off the penguins in in four games in in claude julien looks like what what he's doing is working and uh, maybe maybe i don't know what i'm talking about but i i think ultimately i'd like to see uh, other guys get opportunities as a flyers so, fan i can confirm everything you just said <laughs> yeah i mean you know i mean it's it's jordan wheel i remember he's i don't know how much you guys saw this in philadelphia but when he first arrived, you saw flashes from this guy, and you're like, "Oh yep. wow!" Yep. You know, he was maybe one, this one of the most frustrating players I can remember watching and recently. He's just he'd show flashes of brilliance and then do nothing with it. He's one of those guys that look at and go, "Why are you not better than you are?" Yeah, but it's also, and I think part of the reason Julian likes him is that he can put him out at any forward position, uh, and that versatility is nice. You know, I think a lot of coaches like just. <sighs> I think they the tendency is, is to lean on guys that they can quote-unquote trust, and maybe he just sort of feels like he knows what he's going to get from Jordan Wheel. I think the thing with Dale Weiss is uh, he scored goals in the postseason for the Montreal Canadiens. Like, it's been a long time since he did it, but he did do it, and Claude Julien saw him do it. Claude Julien saw him do it as the coach of the Boston Bruins on the other side when Dale Weiss was scoring goals. And uh, Milan Lucic was telling me he was going to fucking kill him next season in the handshake line after the series. And he's also seen it as the coach of the Montreal Canadiens. And I think that's a hard thing for any coach to forget. Even though Dale Weiss is, I think, it's pretty safe to say his most effective days are behind him. And probably he should not have really been used in the role that he was being used uh, in by, uh, by Michel Therrien. He has scored goals in the playoffs. You know, uh, you guys remember Daniel Briere, right? You'll always love him for that. Yep. Uh, same thing here in Montreal. Like Daniel Briere, his time as a Montreal Canadian was not exactly uh, something that we're going to look back upon with a great deal of nostalgia. But guess what Daniel Briere did when he did, played for the Canadians? He in the postseason he scored and he created goals. This is what that guy did. I'm not trying to say that Dale Weiss is Daniel Briere, but there is. There is something to be said for a guy that has scored big goals in the postseason, and I think it's something that's hard for a, for a coach to forget. Well, 
Well, it's so crazy you're bringing up Danny Briere and Dale Weiss back in the playoffs, and that was 2014, if my memory serves me correctly. And it's almost as if what the Canadians are doing right now is the most excitement they've given to the fan base and the local media since that time. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what else? Uh, they lost to eight games in a row twice this season. They got swept by the Detroit Red Wings, who were one of, literally one of the worst teams in NHL history. Uh, a team that was, like, designed to lose uh, and managed to beat the Canadians all four times they played them this year. I mean, they were bad, dude. Like, really bad. And and not even that fun to watch, either. Like, it was just, it was just a frustrating team. It wasn't a very fun season. So this does. It feels kind of like... I don't know. It's like bonus. It's it's found money, right? It's just a situation where we thought at one point, I think I'm thinking back now to like April seemed a real possibility that there just would not be this season would just end up being lost. Right. And then we, we'd never see them come back. We certainly didn't think that the Canadians would be playing elimination games in the month of August. So there is something to it. You know, Montreal has been absolutely hammered during the uh, the, co- the whole COVID thing. I mean, it's been one of the harder hit cities, the hardest hit city, I think I can say in Canada, although I'm not an epidemiologist, but I think that that's true by a pretty wide margin. Uh, things were really bad here for a while and the Canadians were an afterthought. But now that the weather is nice and it's it's uh, things are turning around, have turned around a little bit and hopefully they continue to do so. You know, we'll see. It's really, it's just a, a super fun bonus to have this going on and uh, just seeing more people out with car flags. You know, I saw I saw a bus the other day. I thought this was great yesterday in Montreal. We've got a pretty good public transit system. And uh, all the buses lately, I'm driving, I was going to pick up my sister in uh, Rosemont. And uh, the buses have all... It has like the number of the bus and the the name of the line that it's on, right? So say 37 Jolly Kerr, uh, 24 Sherbrooke. And then there's another message that flashes. And for the last couple of weeks, because masks are now mandatory, it uh, the, the message that flashes after the number and the name of the bus is porte visage obligatoire, which is French for masks are mandatory. You have to wear a mask if you want to get on the bus. And yesterday for the first time, instead of the visage obligatoire. It was go Canadians go, which is something that we would normally have. That the buses normally would display in this city that's just absolutely nuts for the Canadians when they're being successful. So it's just, I guess, kind of an indication of, of a market where we are starved for success so much so that yes, people are starting to go a little crazy over winning a play play in round. They started to go a little crazy over winning a game in a play in round, but now that they knocked off the penguins, I do think at the bandwagon, this is what always happens, right? People are like, ah, this is stupid. I don't care. It's on it's the COVID cup. It's this isn't even the real deal. Da 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 da. And then all of a sudden you're watching six elimination games on a Friday and watching uh, all these favorites get knocked off and it's incredible and it's amazing i mean was yesterday like the best day of hockey in i don't even know i mean i can't even think of another day that featured what we saw happen yesterday and topped off honestly by what the leafs did to the blue jackets it's uh it's it's just i don't know it's a great thing 
And I think that it's something that I sort of, it's a feeling I forgot about. I think it's a feeling a lot of people in this market had sort of forgotten about. Tired of being hurt by the Canadians, right? So they they kept their distance, but now the Canadians are back in their lives and they're loving it. I think that's a feeling we can uh, echo here in Philly as well. You know, there was a lot, especially with this whole COVID thing, you know, it's, oh, why are we doing this? It's not going to happen. You know, you're, you're all putting these players, whatever. And then they come out and you know, there'll be an asterisk next to the cup and they come out and play and they're dominating, you know, Boston and, and Washington. Everybody's like, yeah, we're going to win the cup this year. You know, the, the feeling of reprisal from, you know, watching good hockey is always fantastic. Well, it was, there must have been, for you guys, there must have been such a feeling of, uh, of I mean, it must have been so disappointing, yes. given the yeah. <laughs> Like, they were, they were the best team in the NHL in the year 2020, right? I mean, they were just absolute killers. And still, I think they're flying under the radar a little bit, aren't they? Like, when I, the feeling I got as, as just an outside observer of watching this team, first of all, watching this team just being like, holy shit, like, this is... This is a serious group. I mean, they've put together a really good team here. But also that when they beat the Bruins, when they beat the Capitals, that people are like, yeah, well, eh, the Capitals didn't play very well. Uh, the Bruins really aren't firing on all cylinders, rather than actually just giving them credit for what they were able to do against the Bruins, who are the best team in the NHL this year, and the Capitals, who won the Stanley Cup two years ago. I think there's something the Flyers have going for them a little bit in that, for whatever reason, and it's possibly just because this is a team that hasn't been able to get it done for a really long time that they're flying under the radar a little bit. I think from a national perspective, they certainly are. From an insider perspective, I don't think I've ever felt this confident about a hockey team. Even back in you know 2010, it was kind of like they were riding a miracle season versus actually maybe deserving to be there. And especially when they came back, you know, when the season ended, they were just getting hot. They won nine of their last ten or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, yeah, we're going to make the playoffs. We're going for the first place in the Metro. And then, then everything goes under and they come back and they are just as strong as they were when they left off. And uh, it's it's a really – it's a feeling of – strength that I don't I can't remember feeling about the Flyers in it, maybe my whole life at least not the last 15 years you know it, so, it, it's magical so what's it gonna be like what if if what's you, give me your perspective and I you know it looks possible that the Canadians could play the Flyers if things go sideways for this team what what's it gonna be what's what's the potential Achilles heel or what's what's if there is a weakness or something you're worried about, what is it? For the Flyers? Yeah. Well, Dan, I'll give my opinion first, and I think we kind of share this. I would say it's the lack of star power up front with the Flyers that scares me. And I know all the Flyers fans listening will be like, ah, oh, Claude Giroux, ah, oh, Shank Like, look, Claude Giroux, he had that 102-point season two years back. But, you know, we watched him all season. He's a step behind. He's a winger now. He's still a good, very good player, especially on the power play. One of the best face-off men, if not the best face-off men in the league. But he is a step behind. Jake Voracek, he was has always been, you know, good for 70, 75 points. But those are the two best forwards, I would say, on the team from a pure offensive standpoint. Lump Sean Katori in there. And I feel like not that the Flyers are easy to shut down offensively because since they brought in Derek Grant at the trade deadline and the emergence of some young guys like Travis Konechny and Nikola Obey-Kubel, I think that it's not especially hard to contain them offensively because right now 
defensively they're as good as they've been as since the days of Pronger and Kimo Tiemann. And I would argue that they're even better now. And then you have Carter Hart in the net, who obviously he had his fair share of struggles this year, specifically on the road. But from what I've seen of him, and obviously a small sample size in just a game and a half, one of which being an exhibition, he looks good as well. So I think the Achilles heel for the Flyers would be trying to generate enough offense, specifically against Carey Price and the way guys like Weber, Sherratt, and Petrie are playing. What would you say, Dan? Yeah, I think you're pretty spot on there. You know, you look at this team, and, and there's not a whole lot of noticeable faults, with the exception of the top guys producing. Um, they've really made up for that with their depth lately. You know, the second, third lines, even the fourth line, uh, have produced through the first two games, and they have found an impressive way to be deep at forward and in defense, and have luckily thus far been able to cancel out that effect. But yes, if there's one thing that worries me, it's Giroux uh, not producing. Voracek was out. He'll be out today. We don't know what it is, obviously, with the NHL's uh, gag order on, on all these updates. So, you know, if he misses time, they're in trouble. You know, you got JVR who hasn't done anything, you know, Being worthwhile. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to be nice. But, uh, yeah, the, the lack of star power is probably the, the only real concern I have. But if they can, you know, continue to roll four solid lines of depth, uh, hopefully that is big enough to overcome the uh, the lack of star power. And you know what? Not a great time right now for star power uh, team, laden teams in the NHL. That if you look true. at what happened, you know, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, so long. Uh, Sidney Crosby of Genny Malkin, gone. So, you know, maybe that offense by committee thing. Look at the, look at the Blues, right? I think yeah. Blues fans might, might say the same thing. I have Vladimir Tarasenko. I mean, Ryan O'Reilly, can we say that? Uh, certainly, I don't think we can say he's a superstar. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a great player for sure, but he's not going to go out there and, and get you 100 points in a season. Maybe we are trending more towards a model where it is just sort of a, a do-it-by-committee thing. Uh, that's the, the, the current recipe, the constantly evolving recipe to win the Stanley Cup. Well, it seems like teams that are going forward and pushing on are the teams that are very well-structured as opposed to the skill-based teams. Like you said, like, well, Toronto and Columbus are still going, but they are as polar opposites as you can get. The Islanders ousted the Florida Panthers, and the Panthers have much more star power than the New York Islanders. The Chicago Blackhawks just beat the Edmonton Oilers. You know, this was probably the most underrated or just least talked about series, but the Coyotes took out the Nashville Predators, and what a tire fire Nashville is becoming with all those big contracts and players not living up to them. But yeah, Connor, I think you're on to something that like everyone was saying that maybe this reset after four months off was going to benefit the skilled teams because, you know, these structured teams that relied on systems didn't have time to practice and might be slow to the gate, but it's been quite the opposite. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I think, uh, no, you make a, you make a good point and it's a great call about the, uh, about the Panthers and uh, Islanders series as well. Like the Islanders, I, I guys, I hate, I hate them. I, I'm one of the, <laughs> I don't care, whatever. Like, I don't think the Islanders are going to win the Stanley Cup, but I just want them to be gone. I feel the same way about them that I felt about uh, Lou Lamorello's uh, various Devils teams over the years, where it was mm -hmm. just like, oh, God, this sucks. It's such a slog <laughs> to watch these games. It's not fun. Uh, I like Matthew Barzali, but, you know, he's... He's kind of like the Patrick Eliash sort of, right? Just like a, a great player on a team that is clearly good. And uh, give Barry Trotz and give them all credit. Like, don't get me wrong. But I just, 
I don't know. I don't like what they do to the game. I don't enjoy watching them play. It's such a grind. Like that for me, for sure, by far, was the series that I cared the least about and devoted the least attention to. Uh, thank God so many of the games were at noon when I'm like normally taking a nap because I just I want the Islanders to be gone. And I'm sad. The Panthers suck to me. I think the Islanders are probably one of the only other teams in the East. Maybe t- it's like Tampa, obviously, because they're, they're just, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else, and they've kind of had the Flyers number for the past four or five years. But I think the Islanders are the only other team that I'm kind of like, man, I really don't want to square off against them because they've kind of had the Flyers number this season. So, and the style they play, uh, they could shut down the Flyers. And it's not the most entertaining thing, but it is impressive how they can uh, just shut teams down. Yeah, it's just, I, I feel like we... I don't know. I experienced watching teams like that win the Stanley Cup in the 90s. We saw it happen even in the 2000s. Like, I just, my hope is that that time has passed and we are not going to watch people try to suck the life out of hockey games in order to win them rather than uh, going out there and, and doing what teams like the Flyers do, doing what teams like the Leafs do, uh, teams that are just, uh, that, that play a little bit of fire wagon hockey and, and, and fly up and down the ice. I mean, that's what I want to see. Well, like, would you say that the Canadians err more on the side of structure? Because, you know, they're, they're not an overly skilled team. They have some high-end players. Like, you can make the case that from an analytics perspective, Tatar, Dano, and Gallagher are one of the best team, uh, best lines in the NHL. And obviously, Nick Suzuki, he's really shown his skill. But, like, the Habs are very, like, structured-oriented in the way that they try and win games, are they not? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, you you could have the weird thing about the Canadians, Claude Julien's Canadians, I think, is that they really kind of remind me a lot of Claude Julien's Bruins uh, in the years before he got fired. Uh, you could say the same thing. Like the the uh, they had really strong. They, the Bruins under Julien always had really strong possession numbers, even after they uh, after they started losing games and and ultimately uh, ended up getting him fired. Uh, they would out-possess teams, they would out-shoot teams, and uh, the difference, the big difference is, and both teams had really good top lines, but the difference is the Bruins with with Marchand, uh, Bergeron, and now Pasternak, obviously, are, are just more high-end guys, right? I mean, we're talking superstar players here, where, you know, Deneau and Gallagher and Tatar, very good NHLers, but I don't think anybody's ever going to describe any of those three guys as uh, as superstars, and they're kind of typical of this team overall like you said there's not a lot of there's not a huge amount of skill there's not a lot of finishing power um and they do they play a really really structured game but at the end of the day they just they don't generate enough high danger chances and when they do generate high danger chances they tend to be on the sticks of guys like Arturi Lekkonen who just have a lot of difficulty finishing and uh, that's that's kind of the story of this group, and it's very much like Julius Bruins were, like I said, at the tail end of his time there. Uh, uh, they are a very structured team for sure. One thing that they've really been bringing, and they, they did bring this year when they were good, because, look, the Canadians did. Uh, they looked pretty good until it was like a Friday night in November when they beat the Capitals in Washington. The Capitals hadn't lost at home yet that season, and the Canadians went in there and they took it to the Capitals but a couple other things happened in that game. One thing was Alexander Ovechkin ran over Jonathan Drouin with an open ice hit in the middle of uh, of the defensive zone and just killed him and basically killed his season. I mean, he just he just trucked him. And uh, the other thing that happened was Paul Byron got injured in that game too. 
uh, you wouldn't think necessarily, and, and, you know, I don't know how good of a team you can really be if losing Jonathan Drouin, Paul Byron knocks your entire season off. But prior to that point, they had looked like a pretty good team. They also did things like uh, they went into St. Louis and beat the Blues. The Blues came to Montreal. The Canadians beat them here. Uh, like I said, they beat the Capitals. They beat some pretty good teams throughout the course of the regular season. Frankly, don't recall how they did against the Flyers. But at times, they, they did look like a pretty good hockey team. And when, they do, when they're doing that, inevitably, defensemen are, are making smart decisions on their pinches. We saw it happen in this series. Jeff Petrie pinching at the right time, scoring a goal um, in overtime in Game 1. Shea Weber in Game 3 ended up banging in his, his own rebound off the rush. I mean, that's not something you'd necessarily expect from a guy like uh, like Shea Weber or ever expected throughout his career. Uh, you don't see a lot of defensemen sort of go to the net like that. And Sherratt was doing it a little bit too. Uh, when the Canadians are effective, they their defensemen sometimes are able to join the rush and, jo- and jump in as almost like a fourth forward. Uh, and that's something they were really able to do against the Penguins. You're brought up a player that I was going to ask about, Jonathan Duran. You know, he, he did get hurt uh, earlier in the year coming back. He did have a goal in Game 3. You know, a former third overall pick, been in Montreal for, what, three, four years now. What, from an outside perspective, he always seems kind of like a bust. You know, a guy that didn't necessarily live up to the hype. What, from an insider perspective, what is he now? I mean, you know, Jonathan Duran, every, every, every fan base has a, a guy or two like this that they, they they think about or they remember this guy that occasionally shows flashes of brilliance, which Drouin did uh, as a junior player and, and playing with Nathan McKinnon in uh, in Halifax. Was that wait? Is that right? Oh, no, maybe yeah. I don't know if I'm getting confused, but I yeah, think that's with right. With the moose heads. Yeah, um, that he and I remember right there was there was people that said. That, uh, you know what, everyone's talking about McKinnon. This is going back to when they were junior players. That Everyone talks about to McKinnon, but Drouin is actually the better of the two players. Well, we, we see how that's worked out. It reminds me of something else that uh, I remember years ago. I don't know if you guys remember uh, Sergei Kostitsin. But, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Shea Paris legend. He was part of uh, the best line in the CHL for the uh, London Knights. He played with... Sam Gagne and Patrick Kane. And Dale Hunter said about Sergei Kostitsin that he he thought Kostitsin was the most NHL-ready of the three players. Uh, now, I don't, I don't think he said that he thought Kostitsin would have the best career, but that he was the guy who was the most NHL-ready. And who knows what might have been. I mean, Kostitsin was actually a pretty good player when he, was, uh, when he was a rookie, and I don't know if the lifestyle here in Montreal was just a little bit too much for him to handle or what. But uh, we all know that he no longer plays in the National Hockey League. Uh, Jonathan Drouin, it's different. I mean, uh, Kostitsin was like a fifth-round draft pick, and Drouin is obviously, Jonathan Drouin is a high-end guy. Hockey Canada loved him since he was a little kid, and he's he's got a ton of skill. I mean, there's a reason that Mark Bergevin wanted to do this, that, that he wanted to go out and get this guy, and it's because of the tantalizing level of talent that this guy has. He shows flashes where he just looks unplayable. But there's also a reason why... Steve Eiserman and John Cooper said, you know what, thanks, but no thanks. Even when he was a member of that team, remember that they benched him in the playoffs uh, when he decided he wanted to be a baby. And they said, sorry, bud, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're glad to go to war without you. And they did. I think that said a lot about him as a young guy, and that was probably a big 
a big sort of alarm bell or warning sign. And uh, Mark Bergevin chose to roll the dice. Uh, most of the time when he's made trades, he's won those trades. He's come out on top. This, I think, is the worst trade he's made. I mean, Mikhail Sergachev is already really good. Uh, Jonathan Drouin just isn't. And, and it's at some point you just you have to say this is who this guy is. And when you're 25 years old and you've played like 400 games in the NHL, I think you can sort of safely say that we know who this guy is. And Jonathan Drouin is kind of a mediocre player who is just as likely not to show up as he is to have a good game. See, when I look at Drouin, I see a very good streaky second liner. And I feel like maybe it's a product of his environment, but when he got brought in here based on who he was traded for, Misel Sergachev, you already referenced how good he has been and was the eighth overall pick, I want to say, in 2016, and by far the best prospect the Canadians had at the time, that he came with unrealistic expectations. You know, they traded for him. They tried him at center, out of position with Patrick and Gallagher right off the bat. But, like, if you go by numbers, it, has he scored over 50 points in each season, or am I getting that wrong, that he's been with Montreal? 50, uh, 53 last year, 46 the first year. Yeah, so, like... Like, obviously he is streaky, but, like, Connor, do you think that maybe it's, like, this is what he is and he's always been this, but because of who he was traded for and the contract he got, that it came with unrealistic expectations and that he is the highest paid forward in Canadian's history? Yeah, there's definitely something to that, but it's not like that's not Mark Bergevin's fault, right? Like, he saddled him with those expectations, by trading their best prospect for him, a guy, a prospect, mind you, that created a massive, massive hole on the depth chart of the team that, that still hasn't been filled. I mean, how good would they look? How much would it change this team if they had Sergachev on the left side of that defense, the worst left left side of a D of any team in the NHL? Um, so, so there is some... I, while I, I agree with what you're saying... That is the pressure that was created by Mark Bergman, bringing in a francophone player into this market, at tr- trying to say that he was going to be a center, and we know that that obviously didn't end up working out. Like that, all I think falls on the shoulder of Bergman. The player deserves uh, some blame too, but I think yeah, your point is well made. If Jonathan Drouin played for the Washington Capitals, I don't think anybody would really be making that big of a deal about him at all because he would be much better insulated on a, a such a such a deep group of forwards but the fact is is given the lack of talent on this in this top 12 uh, the lack of, of finishing ability it is and, and the fact that he's from here i mean it is it's definitely a thing um in this market it, it's it is it's it's it, it's it it's more scrutiny and you can say, and I've said it myself, the highest paid forward in Canadian's history, it's true. But it's also like, well, yeah, but he also only makes $6.5 million a season. I mean, that's that's really not that much money. And it especially doesn't matter for a team that's not even uh, spending up to the salary cap and hasn't done basically since he's he's been a part of this team. But, yeah, it's tough. It's it's it's. It's one of those things. If Jonathan Drouin was on a, like a really good, deep team, if he was on the Blues, for example, like he would be an afterthought. But he's on the Canadians, and they don't really have any talented guys. They don't really have any French guys, so he does end up under a microscope. We already kind of touched upon the uh, uh, Philip Deneau, but how is he deployed? 
I remember back in the day, in the early days of Sean Couturier, he was just a phenomenal shutdown guy, specifically put out there to shut down other teams' top lines. Is that how this line is deployed, or are they played as a third line? No, they're the the Dino line. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's their top line. It's it's. I guess you could argue that Julien tries to match them up against the other team's best unit, uh, and. That's true, but it, it would be unfair to describe them as a defensive line because they spend more time in the offensive zone, it, almost inevitably. I mean, they tend to be a team that's like 60-40 in terms of uh, of uh, possession time versus the time that they're on the ice and don't have the puck. Um, but they're also, like I said, they're just they're not they're not high end guys, right? Like Deneau has a career high of 13 goals. God bless him. Uh, this is another example of a guy. Hey, he's 25 years old. He's played 400 games. I think we can sort of safely say that this is who Philip Deneau is. He's not just going to come out, score 35 goals one year. He's a good player. Don't get me wrong. But when your number one center is a guy who's 25, has played 400 games, and has a career high of 13 goals, you're probably not going to put up very impressive offensive numbers. But the best defense can be a good offense, and I think that's that's what makes this line so effective. Yes, they're good in their own zone, but even better than that is that they're so they so rarely are in their own zone. One thing about the Canadians since they've come back, and while well, the NHL has come back, is what's been going on with Max Domi. Because I've heard you guys talk about it on the morning show about this whole conundrum that he doesn't want to play wing, he wants to play center, and therefore he's on the fourth line. He's been saddled next to Dale Weiss and one of Jordan Wheel or Alex Peliz or what have you. But, like, how do you see this playing out? Because we talked about Suzuki and Kotkaniemi. They're not going any t- anywhere anytime soon. Phil Deneau, you have to figure, is here for the, you know, relatively long haul as well. And if Domi is insisting on being center, where does he fit in long term or even short term? Because I think playing a guy like Max Domi on the fourth line is kind of unideal. And, but then it makes you think that given their lack of talent in the top nine, wouldn't he be best served to playing on the wing? Like, is it more a coaching staff problem or a Max Domi problem? Or does it fall somewhere in the middle? That's the chicken or the egg thing. Like, we don't know. Because, especially, I think, with the lack of media access these days, it's even harder to get to the bottom of it. But there's, like, theories on this. It's that, I, I don't know if it's if it's that Claude Julien says, listen, Max, we, we want to use you as a winger. And Max Domi is saying, well, I don't want to be a winger. I want to be a center, and I'm a center. And Claude Julien says, okay, enjoy being the fourth-line center. Uh, and it's tough. Like, I don't, I, I can't even... I can't even argue at this point with the the three guys that are in front of him. He shouldn't be in Deneau's spot. He shouldn't be in Suzuki's spot. And he shouldn't be in Kakaniemi's spot. Where he should be, I think, in a perfect world, is playing on the wing. But does he not want to play wing? Has he made it clear that that is not what he wants? He doesn't want to play wing and he won't play wing? If that's the case, then I don't really blame for Claude, uh, Claude Julien for, uh, for the way things are going. But other than that, you know, he's the only guy on this roster who's ever scored 70 points in a season. He did that just one season ago. I would think that you try to find a way to get him out there uh, playing uh, more significant minutes and, and, and contributing in an offensive role as a winger. But it's just, it is, it's weird when you look at Domi, you look at how old he is, 
You look at what Kakanyemi and Suzuki are doing. Philip Deneau, I think, is a part of the plan here uh, going forward. So it does raise some interesting questions about the future of Max Domi here in Montreal, whether he fits, whether this team's going to want to commit to him long term. And look, they just played a really, really impressive four-game playoff series against the Pittsburgh Penguins. I know it's just four games. But Max Domi was a virtual non-factor, and they still managed to knock them off. So, I don't know. There's there's interesting short-term questions about Max Domi, and there's also some interesting long-term questions. He's going to contract season. He'll be a restricted free agent at the end of this year. What do you pay this guy? How much term and how much money do you want to commit to a guy who you don't even understand where he fits into your top 12? So maybe we'll get some more clarity on that. Maybe there'll be an injury that'll change the sort of jigsaw puzzle that is the uh, the top twelve for this team. But right now, it just it, he he looks like a like a piece from the wrong puzzle that got plopped down into the uh, into a box featuring a different puzzle. I mean, there's there's no there's nowhere on the board for for him to properly fit. It seems right now. What do you think happens with the Canadiens this offseason? Do you think they make any bigger moves? Obviously, with the cap staying flat, it's going to be more difficult. But do you think maybe making a step foot in the playoffs gives them a little bit more uh, uh, desire to maybe add an impact player or two? Well, they could. I mean, the, the desire, I'm sure, to add an impact player is always there. But as we all know, that's easier said than done. You know, I think what they need to do is look at a team like the Flyers. They've... And frankly, look or look at the Columbus Blue Jackets. Like the thing that I don't understand about the Canadians and, and the way that they built this team. Like we know, we, we know that they can't sign marquee free agents. Full stop. John Tavares wouldn't even like take their phone call a couple of years ago. So <laughs> like, it, it's it's time to get over that. Like it's not going to happen. Fine. So Didn't go, they run to the same problem with Matthew Shane last year? Like they offered yes. him like nine and a half million per. Yeah, and and so they they're not going to get guys. And you know, frankly, I think it's probably a good thing that they're not paying Matthew Shane nine and a half million dollars. But the, the the way that you have to do it, and you know, like Philly is not exactly. Uh, and everybody's not trying to run to Philly to sign a free agent contract. It's like you just be smart, be better and smarter than the other teams hire the best people to draft and develop players and, and hit always hit on your first round pick, find gems in the second, third, fourth and fifth rounds. And every once in a while, maybe a sixth or a seventh rounder ends up, uh, ends up showing something. I mean, that's, that's what the flyers did, right? I mean, is it fair to say about the team that they have right now? Yeah. Uh, other than Jacob Voracek, they drafted, pretty much every impact player on the roster off the top of my head uh, did when was the last time they added like a big time free agent is yeah. there an agreement one i'm forgetting right now they had uh, kevin hayes last summer but other than that okay. a vast majority that, of this team was, is drafted and that was a hell and that was that was a signing that was questioned by many people myself included that yeah, right here pretty, <laughs> oh my god pretty, dan uh, tore right? apart that signing for three months straight yep <laughs> And uh, but you know it's it's it, and look at the guys that they drafted. You brought up Travis Konechny earlier in the show. I, and there is there is a ton of guys on that team. Whether it is the 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 old guys like like Giroux, uh, the less old but still somewhat old guys like Sean Couturier. And it feels weird to say that as somebody who watched him as a junior player, but he's he's getting on a little bit. Uh, but also they just it seems like every year there's a couple of exciting young guys coming up on that team, and that's the that's what I crave as a fan. 
as somebody who in every sport that I that I follow, whether it's like the, the Premier League in soccer or the National Football League, I'm always fascinated by the growth of college players or academy players or junior players into good pros and, and how you get them there. And that's that's incumbent on the organization. Good organizations are good at identifying talent and they're good at developing that talent into star players in the uh, in the NHL. The Canadians simply have not been able to do that really at any point under the Mark Bergevin regime. And I wish, and, and maybe they've made some changes. They brought in Joel Bouchard to run their AHL program. Uh, they've got Marty LaPointe now running their, uh, their uh, he's, I guess, their development director. I'm not convinced about uh, either, either of those guys 100%, but at least they made some changes. But this is, yeah, that's what the good teams do. I mean, the, the Capitals have been doing it too. The St. Louis Blues, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets. Like, they don't have glamorous markets that guys are, are dying to go to. What they do have is, is smart people running their organizations, smart people running their draft, and owners that put their trust in those guys. And also general managers who don't hire their buddies necessarily, but actually hire the best person for the job. I mean, we oh, gave oh. Ron Hextall hell for years for, you know, drafting and delaying the quote-unquote process. But, you know, he may have let it drag on two years too long, but at the end of the day, the fruits of the you – know, are starting to pay off here. I mean, the whole defense essentially, with the exception of Niskanen and Braun, was built from within, either draft picks or free agents, and some of the top stars on the offense were drafted. You know, Konechny, uh, Farabee, uh, Abe Kubel, all these guys came through the draft, and, and it took a long time, but they have built a, a – found a, a Hextall laid a foundation that is impenetrable right now. Yeah, I'm jealous. And and like I got you brought up Bergevin, Connor, and I think it would be fair to say that he's become one of, if not the most polarizing general managers in the NHL. You know, he came in very charismatic, and then you know he looks like he's in the gym seven hours a day, and then he also gets testy at times. But like overall, like how would you describe his tenure? How would you rate his tenure? Because at the beginning, it seemed like they were going to try and retool, but because of the emergence of guys like Galchenyuk and Price and Gallagher right off the hop, and then that run to the Eastern Conference Final in 2014, they thought that maybe they could contend. But ever since, I would probably say 2018, when they got rid of Galchenyuk and Pacioretty, that they've been going through like a quiet rebuild, and they've done a decent job, you know, bringing guys like Kokkaniemi, trading for Nick Suzuki. Alex Romanov, who I think is really flying under the radar for anyone outside of Montreal. They drafted um, the goaltending kid, Primo. Like, they have some good prospects, but, like, it's, what, almost nine years now that Bergevin has been in charge and not a whole lot to show for it. Do you think he has marching orders from the owner, Jeff Molson? Do you think that he had to reboot his plan? Like, how would you summarize his entire tenure at the head of the Montreal Canadiens? Uh, I, there's kind of been two tenures. Um, there was the first five years, and then there's been like the last three years. Uh, and I think you kind of have to look at them separately. Like since Jeff Molson came out, the owner of the Canadians came out and said um, that he kind of gave him a vote of confidence when it looked like he was probably going to get fired, and the most uh, most NHL general managers would be fired in the sort of situation that he created. Uh, that he, you know, he kind of staked his reputation on some pretty big time trades. One of them was the Subban for Weber trade, 
the Drouin trade is obviously another one. And uh, there's been some really good trades too, uh, involving sort of less um, big-time star players. It looks like he's done pretty well in the Pacioretty trade as well. But he did, like, he inherited a team that had a Norris Trophy-winning defenseman in P.K. Subban, a Vezina Trophy, caliber and eventual winning goaltender in Carey Price and a potential 40 goal scorer in Max Pacioretty, a guy who, you know, is, is doesn't get a lot of headlines, but he's, he's a really, really good player, Max Pacioretty. Um, so it's not as if this was a team that, that he inherited that was uh, just a bunch of jobbers. I mean, a lot of franchises will go through long periods of time without having three pieces that are that good. You can argue and debate about what's happened to those players since that point, but back in the early 2010s, I think that was that was a pretty fair assessment, um, and they didn't really do anything. I mean, I, well, they went on a con- they went on that one run to the conference finals, and then Chris Kreider went into Carey Price, and that was sort of the end of that. Um, and then they've been kind of mediocre since then. But uh, since they've had this renewed focus on on youth and development, and talked about retooling rather than rebuilding, I think that uh, Mark Bergevin has looked pretty good. If you, if you look at the body of work over eight years, it doesn't really look that good because of the lack of postseason success, uh, because of the high-profile, uh, some of the high-profile trades that haven't panned out. But there's been a lot of trades that really have, so he's done well in the trade market. Um, what I'm really going to judge him on is what happens with the group of prospects that they have right now. You know, is Romanov going to live up to expectations? Are some of the other forwards they've gotten out of Europe and some of the other guys that they have coming up, are they going to be able to become effective NHL players? What's going to happen with Cole Caulfield, this uh, little guy they drafted last year who's just got an absolute beast of a wrist shot and and looks like he can score, but he's so little. I mean, he's just he's a tiny little guy, and there's a reason he fell to where the Canadians were in the middle of the first round. That's that's sort of where I'm at. I'm, I'm over the whole Bergevin needs to go thing. I think that ship has sailed. And we're going to have to wait and see. We're going to have to wait and see. They're having a, getting a little bit of a bonus here. Uh, of course, they don't deserve to be where they are because they were the 24th-ranked team in the NHL. They had no business whatsoever even smelling the same air as the Pittsburgh Penguins. But they were given that opportunity, and they made the most of it. So you got to give them credit for that. And uh, it's going to be a fascinating offseason. Well, uh, unless Anthony's got any other questions. Uh, you got anything over there, Anthony? No, I think uh, we covered all bases pretty well. Yeah, I think that'll be about it. I think we're going to wrap it up from here. Connor, thank you very much for coming on the show today. You got any uh, plugs you want to get on? Uh, my dog, Lucy's taking a nap over on my couch. <laughs> I'd like to give a shout-out to her. Um, my dad's – oh, it's, today's my dad's 75th birthday, so uh, oh. I, don't know if he listens, I don't know if he listens to the podcast, but if he does, uh, love you, Dad. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. McKenna. Yeah, happy birthday uh, from all of us here at Brotherly Pod. Uh, Connor, thank you very much for joining today, and uh, maybe we'll get you back on in sometime in the future. Yes, maybe, if you play your cards right. Thanks for the invite, guys. Uh, it was a lot of fun chatting with you, and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah, you too. All right, well, that was a uh, nice little interview there. Obviously, the Flyers could play the Canadiens, so getting a little... Uh, inside on the enemy before they uh, square off is uh, beneficial. Yeah, he's a he's a real good listen. I have the pleasure of listening to him every morning here in Montreal. He's a real charismatic guy, good sense of humor, 
And uh, he put up with my uh, garbage fucking connection at the beginning of the show. I'm really sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> it was it was it was worse before we got on, so we'll be uh, <laughs> we'll be fine. But uh, we are what six hours away? I believe the game starts at eight. They finally gave us a start time at like midnight last night uh, from the Flyers Tampa. Uh, JV, uh, JVR is back in. Voracek is out with some random injury or, or illness or whatever. We don't know. And uh, Shane Gossesbear will take the place of Robert Haig, who has scored all the opposition's goals uh, against the Flyers this far. What are you expecting today from the Flyers-Tampa Bay game? Look, like, uh, I'm not expecting a whole lot of intensity from either side, to be quite honest. I, like... I'm I'm expecting to see a good game, but I feel at this point, now that everything's almost set in stone, like, well, I don't know, Dan, like, do you think these guys really give a damn where they finish first or second? I don't think so at this point. Um, they beat the top, they beat, you know, Boston and Caps. I think they've proven all they can prove thus far. If they beat Tampa, it's great. It's a nice little bonus. They can finish first. But, I mean, at this point, finishing second, uh, it's not the end of the world either. Like, and I know everyone, the, the Shane Goss, the Spear fan club, will be like, oh, yeah, here we go, the most optimized lineup. But I think he's in the lineup today because it isn't that big of a deal. And they're willing to take that risk. And look, I'm not going to write, you know, start singing the praises of Robert Hag. And, you know, we know how each of us feel about him. But, like, the Flyers can afford to take a risk, and it is a risk. Putting Gossespierre in for Robert Hag is a risk. No matter how much people want to pretend like Gossespierre is worlds better, he isn't. And I think if we were expecting a high-level intensity game, a game that was like a lot was riding on the line, a typical playoff game, Hag would be in there. And I fully expect Hag to be back in there when the actual playoffs start next week. But I think you see Vorchek's not playing. JVR comes back in the lineup. I just, I'm yet to get into that playoff mode for the Flyers in this round robin tournament because I've seen how the other intense games have gone on. Like the, you know, Connor brought up before the Toronto Columbus game last night. Like that intensity was intense, was insane. Yeah. But yeah. I'm just waiting to get there because even the game against Washington, the games against Boston, like, you just it it's not there yet. Like I was watching the game against Washington the other day and it just felt like another game in January or something. It feels like games between two top teams, but it doesn't have the elimination esque, you know, feel to it. The the emotion that you would find in a seven game series. I think they've been intense games, but as you said, I don't think they're any more intense than they would be, you know, during the regular season. Yeah, and I just, um, where do you think the forward lines end up when the actual playoffs start? Because obviously JVR fell out of the top 12 in favor of Bunneman and Joel Farabee in the game against Washington. Now he's in the lineup just, you know, based on formality because Voracek's not going to play. And I really wonder who's going to shift up to that top line right wing. I believe Farabee was the one getting the call for that. And then JVR is going to go back beside Grant and Abe Kubel? Yes. Look, like, I'm really... I don't want to beat this JVR thing to death because we've done it so much both on on um, the podcast and me specifically on Twitter. But, like, 
it is just becoming so much more apparent about how much he doesn't fit. And you still get people throwing out analytics to try and back him up. And I just, I don't understand the love affair with this guy. And it's another case of Shane Goss' spirit. You've said this how many times? Like, if he goes to another team and he becomes a top pairing defenseman, great. If JVR goes to another team and becomes a top-line player, which I find a far more realistic scenario than Shane Goss' spirit becoming that, that's fantastic. But he's not that here. You look at the long-term depth chart down the left wing of the Flyers. You have Giroux. You have Farabee. Once Limblom comes back, that leaves JVR on the fourth line. And obviously, as AV showed us in the last game, he's not a guy you're going to deploy on a fourth line. You might as well play a Connor Bunham in there or a Carson Torinsky, what have you, Michael Roffel. And I just, I don't understand why people still always come back to trying to defend this guy. I just, I cannot wrap my brain around it. Funny you mention that. I put a tweet out yesterday. I got to get the JVR and Ghost fanboys on the show sometime. I don't want to berate you. I mean, I kind of do. But I just got to know why. Why is this the hill you're willing to die on? And a lot of people replied to that tweet. Most of them said, JVR has fans? And I'm like, are you guys not on Flyers Twitter? Maybe I follow a different Flyers Twitter than you do. But I did have a couple people reply. And one of them, who's been the biggest JVR and Ghost fanboy, goes, maybe people don't like consistent 25 goals a season and a net front presence. And... Somebody else replied, because they started watching hockey in 2015. And I can't help but think that those two tweets go together. If you think JVR is a quote-unquote net front presence, you clearly have not been watching hockey for a very long time. Maybe they didn't see Mike Knubel. They didn't see Scott Hartnell. They didn't see peak Wayne Simmons. You know, there's a net front presence, and then there's a guy standing in front of the net. That'd mm-hmm. be like saying if Shaquille O'Neal and I were on the basketball court. You know, he's a basketball player. I'm a dude holding a fucking basketball. You know, it's not the same thing. And JVR just doesn't fit. And sure, he racks up goals. But is there a more one-dimensional, useless guy overall that's getting paid $7 million in the league right now? I don't think so. He just There's nothing he specializes in. And listen, if he was deployed on the top line with Giroux and Couturier and maybe utilize a little better. Yeah, you know, you could maybe squeeze something out of him and maybe justify it. But when when that top six is filled like it is now, and quite frankly, the top nine is filled right now, uh, if Voracek was healthy. But uh, it's just, (laughs) there's just no room for, you can't put this guy on the fourth line and say, go play a fourth line role. Joel Farabee, for a good example is a guy that we've seen play in the bottom six and on the fourth line this year. And he can go out there and he can play that physical, grimy hockey and fit in well down there. JVR can't. I don't know if he's thrown a hit in the past five years. You know, He just can't, he can't adapt to a different role other than the one he already knows. And I think that's the biggest issue with JVR. He just can't adapt. And uh, he's just he doesn't have a spot here. And sitting him in favor of, of Joel Farabee is an improvement. As much as Joel Farabee made him not be ready for the big time, he looked just fine in the Caps game on the third line there with uh, Aubrey Cabell and Grant. And, and Bunneman uh, held it down on the fourth line. You know, there's, no, there's just no room for him in this lineup anymore. I think it, it really comes back to this, and I put a tweet about it yesterday, about referencing how fans want the team to be good, but with only certain players. Yes. And my tweet said, 
It seems as though that some fans would rather lose with Frost than win with Grant and or Thompson because the lineup is optimized with the former, risking results for moral victories. The Flyers lineup has been at its best since Grant and Thompson were acquired, in my opinion. And I don't really know how you can debate that. And it kind of stemmed because I saw a thread between Dan Silver and Alex Appleyard. And Alex basically was not trashing Derek Grant and Nate Thompson, but basically saying that Grant is at best a fourth-line center and Thompson isn't an NHL player on any team, referencing that he played a less role with the Montreal Canadiens before he was brought in here. But I don't understand how someone could watch the Flyers when you had Frost and Bunneman as the 3-4-C, and then you had Grant and Thompson as the 3-4-C, and say it was better with the former. For me, watching the game, I saw the Flyers were the most complete, the most well-rounded, the most spread out when they brought in those two guys at the deadline. And if my memory serves me correctly, they've only lost one game since they brought those guys in. I'm having a hard time thinking back, but given the fact that they went on a 9-1-0 stretch before the season paused, I'm pretty sure that's at least somewhat accurate. And... I, I guess maybe it's because analytics have a hard time, like, like I guess, rating someone's play without the puck. But those two guys, the effects that they've had, the fact that they've allowed Lawton to go back to wing has just made it such a big positive having those guys in the lineup. And, you know, even Appleyard told me that he thinks that Frost is a slightly better option than Grant at 3C. And I, I don't know how anyone could draw that conclusion. I really do not. And maybe someone could fill me in here on what I'm missing. But from what my eyes are telling me and from the actual results that the team has gotten with Grant and Thompson in there, I don't know why people try and push this narrative that they're not good players and they shouldn't be in the lineup over guys like Morgan Frost. And I think it lies with James Van Riemsdyk as well, that they just insist because he has good expected goals for or he scored 25 goals in the past, or what have you, that he is better than, I don't know, a Nate Thompson, or what, like something like that. Or, you know the point I'm trying to make. Like, what, could you try and help me out? Like, I just can't understand that. The trade deadline was February 25th. The season was paused on March 10th. The only game they lost in that time was to the Bruins, which was the very last game. Uh, it's two, four, six, eight games. So there you go. Uh, listen, I've talked about it before, and I think it's it's one of two things, and it, it's the NHL twenty effect, right? It, it's it's wanting to put the players in the lineup no matter what, you know, there, there with no repercussions, no real life trials and tribulations. Just put them in there, and they're gonna be just fine. And listen, they tried Frost at three C this year already, and it didn't work. He got overwhelmed. He's not physically mature enough to handle that kind of of workload, of that kind of physicality. That's just not the player he is. And unless you're going to put him, like they did when he first debuted, up with Giroux and Voracek or, or, you know, Konechny or some kind of pair up there and give him that chance to succeed from a strictly offensive role, there's just no room for the guy. And, And I just, listen, I get where they're coming from can you find two players in the league that are better than grant thompson for your third and fourth line i'm sure you can it probably isn't that hard but from a 
playoff perspective, the Caps game is a fucking great thing. They were out hit. It was like 45 to 20 or something like that. It was some insane number. You think Frost would have succeeded in that game? The answer is no. You know, I just, he's just not the kind of player that brings that edge that's going to succeed in the playoffs. He's just not ready. And this is coming from somebody that watched him play all year with the fucking Phantoms. I just don't. He just, There's so much missing from his game that I don't think your casual viewer watches. You're going to look at the, the, the stat line, and maybe his analytics are fine. I don't give a shit. Or they're just going off of the highlights they've seen, uh, whether it be with the Phantoms or even going back to his junior days. They don't put any thought into the role that he's playing. You know, you just want everybody to look good analytically. Who gives a shit whether they fit the role or not? You know, and I just, it comes down to a case of Frost is not supposed to be a fourth line center just for the sake of having him in there over Nate Thompson. It, a fourth line is a role-playing role. You know, you're not supposed to put your offensive guys down there. That's not how this fucking works. <laughs> it's just, I think that's what it comes down to with Frost. And when Bunneman got put in, everybody's freaking, oh, why, why didn't you take Thompson out? You know, Thompson scored a fucking goal in the playoffs. <laughs> he scored in the yeah, first game. And uh, I don't know. Listen, like I said, I'm sure you can find better players out there, but Frost playing just for the sake of him playing is not the way this should go. This is the playoffs. You put the best line out there to win. And right now, Grant and Thompson, in their respective roles, give you the better chance to win over Morgan Frost. Another thing that people haven't talked a lot about, but I've realized what Chuck Fletcher has done over the last 13 months or what have you, it's a trend of players that he's brought in and it's something that the Flyers lacked a lot under the Ron Hextall regime, and that's size. Almost every guy that Fletcher has brought in is a considerably big dude. Like yes. Kevin Hayes, massive. Derek Grant, massive. Thompson, big. I think he's six foot one, but he's a tough guy. Tyler Pitlick, about the same thing. Then on defense, you know, you bring in Justin Braun. You, Phil Myers, okay, he didn't acquire him, but he became a full-time regular under Chuck Fletcher. And I think people haven't realized that that has been a big part of this Flyers turnaround. They're able to play that strong, structured system because of the size they have, kind of like St. Louis last year. When, you know, the only defenseman they had under six foot, I think, was Vince Dunn, and he was on the third pair. And I think now the the smallest defenseman the Flyers have, when Robert Hag's in the lineup over Shane Goss' spear, but I, I believe it's Matt Niskanen. I think he's the only guy under six foot. He's a and six foot 204. So then in that case, when Hag is in over Goss' spear, I don't think the Flyers have one guy under six foot. I am... Um confirming that Haig is 6-2 Braun is 6-2 uh, Phil Myers is 6-5 Sanheim is tall Travis Sanheim is 6-3 I think 6-4 he's listed so yeah Shane Goss I think Shane Goss is 5-11 uh, yeah so and look I'm not I'm not trying to say that like oh yeah like if we had Paul Mara and Hal Gill and Hatcher out there like they would be <laughs> just as good like no of course not these are the guys that maybe except for Braun and Hag they can really carry the puck like Phil Myers and Travis Sanheim like they're big dudes but they skate like Shane Goss you know what I mean yeah and or even better if if I if I do say so but like 
it's something that intangibles you'll never see because they'll say, oh, well, the expected goals for or oh, like uh, puck possession. But and that's another thing that I've realized about analytics is that I don't know why. And Connor kind of brought this up a bit, but like, I don't know why puck possession automatically means you're playing well. I don't understand it. Like if you watch the New York Islanders play and like, again, like I don't like the Islanders. I don't like that style of play, but if your game is to suffocate teams in the neutral zone and capitalize off of turnovers and score off the rush and you don't care about cycling, does that make you a bad hockey team? Because I think Barry Trotz is a top three coach, if not the best coach in the NHL. And he is the opposite of puck possession. If I like, I think it's because it's just this style or this newfound thought process that if you have the puck, it's the best form of defense. And that is true in many cases. But then you look at Toronto playing against Columbus and it's two worlds colliding pretty much. And it's not like one side is overly dominating the other, but maybe it's just an equal balance that one isn't better than the other. It just comes down to what team is better. And I, I think that's where these analytics people can't evaluate it's the size. It's such a one-sided argument. They look at that puck possession means wins. And theoretically, I guess that's true, but you're, like you are just saying, there's more to hockey than that. There's different styles. It's not a one-directional uh, thing here. You can play the Barry Trot style. You can just flat-out fucking dominate. Who gives a shit if you have puck possession? That's the the, the, the the wrongdoing of analytics to begin with is looking at things from such a one-dimensional point of view. Well, like, for you, like, have you... Do you think that the, the size that Fletcher's brought in has, like, helped the Flyers succeed? I think the bigger the hockey team you can get, the better. And especially when you have guys like Phil Myers and Sandheim that can do what they do at 6'5". You know, that, that's the most important thing. And, you know, you don't need the Mike Rathjews of the world anymore. That's not what I mean by size, even though, goddamn, I would love Mike Rathjews on this team. But uh, you, you need... Big teams consistently win. These small, fast-scoring teams. It's no fucking surprise these teams get eliminated every year. Meanwhile, the Boston Bruins have been perennial cup teams for a decade. No, the Blues won. Did anybody watch that Blues-Bruins series last year? The two beefiest teams the NHL squared off. It's it no surprise match. they got there. <laughs> you know? And I think it's helped define the Flyers. I don't think they're necessarily the Broad Street Bully era Flyers, but a little bit of size in talent goes a very, very long way. Yeah, and uh, again, I love how this team looked. Like I, I think the Flyers' best lineup is how they had a game one with Michael Roffel in there, except maybe putting Farabee in over JVR. Like I think that's the only question you can make. I don't want Thompson out of the lineup. I don't want Grant out of the lineup. Um, I when everyone's healthy, then like is. I think that's the only question you can make. Ghost over Hag also possibly. Because, you know, Hag doesn't play at a level that makes him, you know, like immune from being taken out of the lineup. I think that's more... Especially just... with the power play going over 8 thus far. As much as yeah. Ghost may not be the offensive dynamo he once was, if you want to at least try and get your power play going, he would theoretically be the guy you go to, even though you know he's going to shoot the puck fucking five feet wider than every time. But you know, if you want to give your chance a spark, he would be the go-to guy on the blue line. Yeah, and it's just 
all he has to do is not blatantly fuck up in his own end and that spot is his which that, is a big ask though that's the that's the issue because people like they they try and act like like robert hag is well it's funny i don't know if you saw this but that guy that i forget what he said but he he said a bunch of obvious points about the flyers but acted like they were hot. Oh, takes. that's right. Robert Higg is bad. Shane Gossespierre, good. Or something like that. Or it was JVR. I don't remember <laughs> what he said. But it was something. It was the most obvious take you've ever seen. But he broke through it in some way that was groundbreaking shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it's even, like, uh, even Alex put out a tweet the other day about the expected goals for of the top 4D, Provrov, Niskin, and Sanheim, and, and, and Myers. And then he's just like, and... Hag and Braun have far and away been the worst of the pairs. I'm just like, well, isn't that why they're the third pair? <laughs> like, not for anything, but in theory, they're the wor the two worst defensemen on the team. So why do you need analytics to tell you that Provrov and Niskanen and Sanheim and Myers are better than Hag and Braun? Like, like... I, and and I've talked about it. I, I think Myers and Braun really benefit from having one another there. Like, they really lead on each other, and they're almost like they split the number four down the middle. But, like, I don't need analytics to tell me that Robert Hag is the worst defenseman on the team. But that doesn't make him a bad number yes. six defenseman. Yes. that I think that's the key that not a lot of people get is he may be – listen, I'm not saying Robert Hag is good. But uh, this is the same thing that I ended up doing with fucking Chris Stewart all the season, which was, he's not good, but Jesus Christ, these people that hate him exorbitantly for no reason. Man, he just wrote an article on Brotherly Puck earlier in the week about Nate Thompson, you know, and why everybody hates him, and why it's so fucking stupid to jump to that conclusion right away, you know, and, and Haig has been kind of the whipping boy, and I think a lot of people have their rose-colored glasses on with him, and they go, well... He's just bad, you know, because they're just, they're, they're, they're mute. I remember the, it was against the Capitals, I don't remember when it was, but somebody put out a GIF of the Flyers going in on a line change. They were yes. three caps out there. Haig skated to center ice and dumped the puck in. And he goes, look how bad Haig is. And it's like, you fucking idiots don't know anything about, that's a fucking basic one-on-one hockey play. <laughs> You're burying him for dumping the puck in on a line change. The hate people have for this guy. Is so, so, uh, I need a goddamn thesaurus. It's just, it doesn't, it, there's no bearing to it most of the time. They do it just for the sake of doing it. And and the same goes for Grant and Thompson here. Uh, have I particularly noticed Grant in these playoffs? No, not really. But, you know, you, would, you put Frost in his spot, and you're going to get, you're going to notice him because he's going to be getting run over by the competition every goddamn little shift. So, I don't know. This whole thing is just, we've been having this, debate for all off season all during the season really and it's just it's one i will never be able to fully wrap my mind around yeah it, it's just it's i just find it funny when people are just like well look how good provrov sanheim and niskanen are and how bad hag is compared <laughs> to them it's just like but you're comparing no a guy yeah like it, Compare him to the other number sixes in the NHL. And it's funny because just like just to prove a point earlier in the season, I got Alex to do that. I took all the 31 number six defensemen, including Robert Hag, and I said, using whatever fucking models you do, <laughs> rank them. 
And after he did it, he said, well, Hag ranks somewhere between 15 and 20 out of the 31. I'm just like, so then why are we complaining? And like, when I was talking to him, he was like, you could sense like the, how, how conflicted he was that like, <laughs> he was just like, no, but he's actually bad. But, and then I was just like, but you just said he ranks 15 to 21. He's just like, well, well out of this group. Yeah. I'm just like, well, if you put him against Eric Carlson from 2014, like, obviously he's not going to look good. Uh, uh, it's 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 premeditated hate at this point is what it is and uh i don't know people aren't gonna no matter who they put back there unless you know they call up uh zamula and york next year and they start with you know pro rob niskanen sanam and myers you know they're not gonna be happy and it goes back to my nhl 20 theory you know it's just that's the way they would play it in the game and thus it must make sense in real life without taking any kind of the you know human aspects into creating a lineup Speaking of York, I was kind of. Did you no, see that weird. picture of him in the gym? Yeah, that's Holy what I was. Holy gonna... shit! Yeah, that's what, I was gonna... <laughs> that's what I was going to bring up, and literally, it's like, like I Hulk saw Hogan that... for Christ's sake. <laughs> and I didn't even want to look at the comments because I'm just like, oh, here we go. We're all going to be ejaculating through the computer screen now. <laughs> yeah, I saw the picture. And I was like, Christ, that kid's fucking ripped. He's listed at. 5'11", 175 right now. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I well, think like, I just, at I just, least 190 or 200 by now. You, you just knew that, like, all the comments would be centered around, like, blowing smoke up the kid's ass because, like, he's... He I don't think I've looked like, at the comments. Yeah. Should I pull him up here quick and... Well, like, it's just for sure everyone just freaking out over, like... Let's see here. 52 comments on Mr. Silver's post. Hmm... <laughs> was only, i accurate if only he could do better than zero points in five games with his junior national team <laughs> uh probably Provrov's future partner yam is corked and here i am shoveling taco bell into my mouth washing it down with a vodka and coke <laughs> that i saw that was fun oh man uh it's his tinder pick apparently <laughs> 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 I mean, that makes sense, I guess. There's not quite as many uh, verbal masturbations on here as you would uh, think, but... Really? I, I I thought, like, I just avoided it because because the kid's jacked, everyone was going to... Yeah, I avoided it, too. Him to... This is the first time I'm everyone, looking at it. Everyone was going to equate him to being the next Scott Niedemeyer just because he's super jacked. <laughs> Training camp is going to be fun for the veterans next year. Getting his swell on. Hmm. Yeah, not a lot of, uh, he's the next guy kind of thing. <laughs> hmm. <sighs> well, my fucking bladder's gonna explode. So let's, uh, wrap this show up here for the day. I got all my vitriol out on the flyers while I can. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow night with the Brotherly Puck Roundtable. We'll get some of the writers on and, uh, give their opinions over the, uh, exhibition games. Or uh, round-robin games, I guess. And the preview for the draft. I don't think Jim and I will be back until the week for post-game, uh, whenever that is. I guess we'll get a schedule at some point, but considering the NHL doesn't like to give anything in advance, who the hell knows? We'll probably find out 25 minutes before they actually play their game. Um, but, yeah, that'll be uh, it for me here. Uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at adamarco25. And uh, next Friday we actually have another... Uh... Pretty good guest booked. 
We have uh, George Richards from the Miami Herald, and I want to get the inside scoop on where the Panthers go from here. Yeah, we'll get some uh, inside information on the Panthers, and maybe we'll know the fate of uh, Dale Talon by then. A lot of rumors going around that he may get canned, but nothing is official yet. So we'll uh, hopefully that news cracks by then one way or the other so we can grill him about that. At in the Flare event, at Brotherly Puck, uh, Heart Countdown is back, everybody, at Heart Countdown underscore. Uh, if you want to count down Carter's win since he is starting today, hopefully we can get one step closer to uh, making some history. So thank you very much to Connor McKenna for coming on the program. We'll be back uh, next time, everybody. But until then, goodbye and good night.